Well, it's Christmas season, in case you hadn't noticed, and I thought it would be a good time for a story, or three. We're going to have the story this morning of Purim, the Jewish festival that we'll read about in the book of Esther, the story of Christmas, and the story of you, each of them in four acts. The biblical story, says Timothy Laniac, calls its readers to enter its world, to be captivated by its characters, intrigued by its plot, and affectively engaged through suspense and complication till its final denouement. Biblical stories invite us into a world contoured by ancient conventions, yet pulsing with continuous relevance. And I think that's exactly what you'll find in the book of Esther today. This is a story that has all the ingredients of a great story. It has a beautiful heroine. It's got a strong hero. It's got an evil villain. It has a powerful king. It has opulence and palace intrigue. It has ethnic rivalry and even a a civil war. I think you'll enjoy this story today. Each of these stories is in four acts. And we've, we've titled the sermon today, Let's Christmas Party. And you'll find out where we're going here as we go through this, this story. The first act is destruction planned. Now, all was well in the kingdom of Persia. The year was 474 B.C. and King Xerxes was on the throne of one of the largest and most magnificent kingdoms the world had ever seen. It stretched all the way over three continents from Egypt, north through what is modern day Turkey and the Balkans and clear east over to India. Perhaps 80 nationalities in 127 provinces. And just to help put it in historical perspective, for those of you who remember our study in the book of Nehemiah last year, King Xerxes, also called King Ahasuerus, was the father of King Artaxerxes. And that was the king that Nehemiah served. So our story today happens before the events in the book of Nehemiah, but after the people had returned from exile and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the new queen had been on the throne for four years at this point in our story, the lovely Queen Esther. She had been orphaned as a child and raised by her cousin Mordecai in the citadel of Susa, the ancient winter capital of the Persian court. Her beauty was pure and stunning, so that when she was entered into a really an old fashioned beauty pageant is what it amounted to, a competition to see who would replace the queen. The text in chapter 3 says that Esther won the approval and favor of the king because he liked her more than any of the other women. And so he put on her head a crown and made her queen instead of Vashti. Except there was one small problem, and that was this, that she was a Jewess. Her ancestors had been taken into captivity perhaps some hundred years before this event. And so she was a minority in the kingdom of Persia not well-liked by the majority population. And that in and of itself would not have been a problem until the entrance of the bad guy. Now, every good story needs a good bad guy, doesn't it? I mean, where would Obi-Wan Kenobi be without Darth Vader? Or where would Wesley be without the evil Prince Humperdinck? A little more Princess Bride fans than Star Wars fans. Where would uh, Aladdin be without Jafar? Or what would have Inspector Callahan become if it had not been for the Scorpio killer? But whatever your taste in movies, we we like that tension and that drama of the villain. Otherwise, you don't have much of a story. And so here, right on cue in chapter 3, our villain enters the scene, the wicked Naaman, the sinister prime minister. (laughs) 
And he got a bee in his bonnet when Mordecai refused to bow down his knee and honor him like he had required everybody in the kingdom to do. And so when Naaman found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he decided that it would not be enough punishment just to kill him. He would wipe out all of his people. So Naaman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, which was virtually every Jew in the entire world. And this was some kind of an evil scheme that he hatched. Somehow he got the king to sign off on an edict. And here's what that edict said. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order. And here's what the king had signed off on to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews. Notice it wasn't going to be enough just to destroy them. It wasn't going to be enough just to kill them. They were going to annihilate all the Jews in the whole province, in the whole kingdom. In every province, young and old, women and little children on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. This appeared to be the end of the road for the Jewish nation. The greatest king on the face of the earth had just issued an irrevocable decree that these people would be completely wiped out and exterminated. Ethnic cleansing in this purest form. And there was no way out for the people of Israel. It looked like game, set and match. Ball game over. Except it wasn't a ball game and it wasn't a movie. It was life itself for hundreds of thousands of Jews throughout the empire. For the Jewish race itself and by extension for the hope of a Jewish Messiah who was to one day come through a Jewish family. Destruction had been planned. Act two. Despair suffered. Now you need to work with me a little bit today because we live in a very different country than the kingdom of Persia. We can't even really begin to understand what they were feeling like at this point in time. One reason is that most of us here have never been a minority in a country. We've never had that crush of feeling like everybody else is against us that the Jews had. But more importantly, we live in a country that that has the rule of law. We have the police. We have the National Guard in an emergency. And we know that if something gets out of hand, there's going to be somebody to come and help and deliver us. But just imagine with me, if you will, for a few moments this morning that you're a minority living in this huge kingdom. Everybody really doesn't like you. In fact, some of them even hate you. Uh, They're jealous of the stuff you have. And then a decree is issued that on a certain day, several months ahead, the police are going to take the day off. That the National Guard is going to go on vacation and there is complete carte blanche for a whole day that they can do whatever they want with you. And so suddenly you're thinking now, okay, what's going to happen on that day? All of my my neighbors are going to gang up against me. They're going to come into my house and drag me out by the scruff of my neck. They're going to take me in the backyard and kill me. They're going to kill my wife and my children. And then they're going to haul off with all of my stuff. And there was nothing that you could do about it. They suffered great despair because of the plot that the enemy had hatched against them. Now, have you ever been under the sentence of death? Well, I have. Except it was in a dream. And it was just a few weeks ago when I was in Cambodia, had one of these bizarre dreams, but it it got me into the the frame of mind for this message. And, you know, you think later what made you start thinking about these weird things when you have a strange nightmare and 
And that evening, a few of us had been talking, sharing mission pastor stories. And one guy had been, uh, told the story of when he was at an airport in Nairobi and almost got arrested and dragged away. And so somehow I think these thoughts were in my mind. But in my dream, here's what happened. I had been sentenced to death. Unjustly, of course, because I would never do anything that would deserve that. But here I was actually lying on a gurney in the execution chamber. And all these people were around me. And, and this guy starts coming towards me with a gas mask. And there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Except I, I just had in my heart that I needed to do one more thing. And so I, I said, hold it, wait a minute. And I got up off the gurney and went out into the parking lot and, and got into my car. <laughs> You know how dreams go, they, they just don't make any sense. But I, I thought, if, if I'm going to die, I need to at least tell my wife, Marty, goodbye. So I, I found a piece of paper, scratched a little note for her, and I, I stuck it in the, the dashboard, and uh, I locked the car. And I remember walking back into the execution place, <laughs> and I know what you're thinking, but, but I was thinking, how is Marty going to get the keys to the car to get in and to find that note? And so I, I went back in and laid down on the gurney, and... And then, of course, I woke up. But, but what are you telling me as you hear that story? It's like, well, when you get in the car, just run the other direction. Just get out of there. Save yourself. But, but in the dream, I couldn't do that. And it was the same thing for these people, the Jews. There was no recourse. There was no way out. They were going to die on this day. And this was on them like a heavy burden, pressing and crushing them down every day for the next several months. It was boring into their souls. It was bringing despair and and agony and anguish and torment because they knew that just a few weeks down the road they were going to be destroyed. And when Mordecai found out about it, here's what his response was. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Probably none of us has ever done that. Shrieking up and down the streets of our village or our town because of the despair that has engulfed us. Here's what the people did in response. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. You see, we think we have problems in life and and we do. There are some of you here who are struggling with significant issues and And these problems weigh us down and they get us discouraged and sometimes they even get us depressed and we don't know how we're going to get out of it. But I dare say that none of us in this room has had anywhere near the experience of despair that the people of Israel had in the kingdom of Persia. We have never despaired to this extent. And we need to enter into that with our thoughts and our emotions today and to suffer with them the despair that they would have felt at this great burden. There appeared to be no way out. And yet, with God, there always is a way out. And the story, of course, doesn't end here because that would be a very depressing story. And it goes on to Act 3, Deliverance Provided. You know the story well. Esther calls for prayer and fasting, and then by faith she goes into the king's presence. She wins his favor. She exposes the plot of Naaman. And in a delicious twist of irony, Naaman is hung on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. God did something that only he could do. He who holds the heart of the king in his hand changed the heart of the king in an instant. He turned the king, rather than being against the Jews and not caring for them, to caring for them and being in their favor. God did it. 
He provided the deliverance. But that wasn't quite the end of the story because an edict had been issued. And the text says in chapter 8, verse 8, that no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So the king just couldn't say, uh, mistake, wipe that one out, we'll just start all over again. No, that edict stood. And so Esther once again goes in and it says, she pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? Her request was met with favor providentially because God was on her side. And the king, in essence, handed over his signet ring to her. He was playing kind of fast and loose with this signet ring thing. And he said, write whatever you want. Just make a new edict and and, and stamp it. And that's how we'll move ahead. So she got together with Mordecai. And here's what they came up with. The king's edict. Now, this is edict number two. Granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. Now, do you notice these three words again? Do they look familiar? To destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. And that's exactly what happened. Several months later, when the fateful day came, God turned and provided strength to his people. And here's what happened. On this day... The enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned. Don't you love our God? He's a God that knows how to and has the power to turn tables. Completely flip this thing on its head. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So the Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. Not one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And that's exactly what happened on that day. The Jews fought back under the authority of the king. They killed 500 of their enemies in the city of Susa. And they killed 75,000 of their enemies in the rest of the kingdom. But the text is very careful to tell us why they did that. It says that they did it to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. Chapter 9, verse 16. This was not ethnic cleansing. This was merely an act of self-defense. They went to kill those who were planning to kill them under the authority of God and the king. And even though you remember in the second edict, they had been given permission to lay their hands on the plunder of their enemies. In chapter nine, as the story unfolds, three times the text tells us that they did not lay a hand on any of their enemies' properties. All they were doing was getting relief from their enemies. You see, God had provided a way of escape. They had been delivered. A hopeless situation had now been resolved and they were once again free. And how do you suppose that made them feel? Well, that brings us to act four, delight. And they knew how to celebrate their joy. This really happened in two phases. The original edict was issued about the middle of January by our calendar. 
And then Esther went into the king about the end of March. So for, for two and a half months, the people had lived under this heavy burden of this edict that was against them and was going to destroy them. But now, the end of March, Esther goes in and they issue the second edict and there's deliverance on the horizon. And here's how the people responded. The city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews. You think? Yeah, with feasting and celebrating. Even though they hadn't yet been delivered, they knew that deliverance was on the horizon and they celebrated with feasting and gladness. And then after the day came, after they got relief from their enemies, which wasn't for a few more months, it was actually about the middle of December when this annihilation was supposed to happen and when the tables were turned and they killed their enemies. After that happened, we come to our text that Dan read for us this morning in chapter 9. And here's our key central text for today. I want you to see how they celebrated. They celebrated as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. We're about ready to enter the holiday seasons. Let me tell you what a holiday is really about. That they should make them, and here's the three things that they did to celebrate. To celebrate their delight in God's deliverance from the despair of destruction. They did feasting and gladness. They had days for sending gifts of food to one another. And they gave gifts to the poor. They did three things. They enjoyed a scrumptious meal. They gave each other gifts. And they remembered the poor. And as I thought about that verse, as I was reading through it earlier this year in my Bible reading, I thought, wow, that is exactly what we do at Christmas time. And so I thought, why don't we have a Christmas message from Esther? And here it is. And, and this was so important for them to remember what God had done that down in verse 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Can you imagine mandating a party? Requiring a celebration? That's exactly what happened here at the end of chapter 9. You see, these people were so full of joy because they had experienced the distress and they had experienced the deliverance themselves, but they knew that a few short years down the road, their children and their children after them were likely going to forget the great deliverance that God had brought. And so they made this a law for the Jewish people that every year you have to celebrate Purim. And to this day, Purim is one of the greatest festivals in the Jewish calendar. It typically begins a day earlier with something that's called the Fast of Esther. For a day they fast and they... They remember how dark and gloomy and full of despair those days were when they were under the edict of the king to be destroyed. But the next day after the fast, they gather together in the synagogue in the evening and they, they bring out the scroll of the book of Esther and they read that story together. And, and the Jews really know how to read because how they would do this story is whenever the name of Haman was mentioned, everybody in the audience would say, let his name be blotted out. And the kids would have rattles and noisemakers and they would shake them and make all kinds of noise whenever Haman's name was mentioned. Everybody would boisterously boo and hiss and yell. They would stamp their feet on the synagogue floor like they're grinding Naaman's memory into the dust. They knew how to celebrate a defeated enemy. And that's what they did on the evening. 
the reader who was reading the book would recite the names of Haman's ten sons all in one breath as a way to remind people that they had all been killed at the same time, that God had avenged himself on his enemies. Then the next morning, the celebrations continue. The, they, they continue and finish the formal part of the, uh, the festival. And then the fun really begins, the fun of Purim. That's when they begin to pass out gifts to each other. They have, uh, in fact, the, the average person thinks that everything is permissible on the day of Purim. And it gets pretty wild. Now, I've never seen this. I'd actually love to watch this sometime. But in the synagogue, lots of stuff is going on. They have carnival-like celebrations. They have dramas and skits. They have hymns and singing. They have, they have a beauty contest. Uh, and they give gifts to one another. They have gaily wrapped baskets of snacks and, and sweets and pastries and wine and fruit and salads that they give to each other. They're celebrating a good old time. And they, they dig into the food and they dig into the drink. In fact, there's a mitzvah in the Talmud. That, now, that's not the Bible. That's the Jewish sort of application or interpretation of the Bible. But a mitzvah says that on Purim... You need to drink more than just one or two drinks. In fact, you need to drink so much till you get to the place where you can't tell the difference between the phrase, cursed be Naaman and blessed be Mordecai. Now, that's pretty sloshed, isn't it? But that's what they do. They are so full of enthusiasm of celebrating the deliverance that God has given them. But they also, at the same time, remember the poor. Did you see that? That's the third way that they celebrate Purim. And the Talmud also says that it's better to give more money to the poor than you spend on gifts to each other. And we may come back to that in just a moment. But I wanted to get you thinking about one thing. What is it that made them party so hard? Why were they so exuberant and celebrate so spectacularly? Was it not the depth of despair? The hopelessness of their plight, the direness of their situation that they had first felt. You see, the darker the night, the brighter the dawn seems. And they had gone through the darkest night imaginable. They had come right up to the very brink of extinction as a race. And God, at the last minute, had intervened and delivered them, and they had to celebrate. And so this brings us to our second story of the morning, the story of Christmas. Because if we're going to really understand what it means to celebrate Christmas, we need to walk through these four acts ourselves. Because the story of Christmas is a story in four acts as well. First, destruction. Destruction planned. I think you know who did that. See, Adam and Eve were living in the garden in perfect harmony with God. All their needs were being completely met. They enjoyed fellowship with God and And there was no room in that picture for Satan. And so Satan began to hatch the granddaddy of all wicked plots. And he said, if somehow I can can bring a wedge in between God and his people, maybe I can wiggle myself in and, and find a place at the table. You see, because Satan, like Haman, wants people to follow and worship him. And so he hatched a plan to do that. And you know what his plan was. He disguised himself as a serpent. He slithered into the garden and he spoke these words to Eve as he began to act his plan. He said, did God really say? And you know what happened from there. They disobeyed God's command. 
destruction came upon them. You see, we need to understand that Satan is our stated enemy. He is the father of liars. He is the deceiver of the nations. He is the accuser of the brethren. He stalks the earth as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he has plotted your destruction and mine. And his goal is to kill and destroy and annihilate anybody who will not follow him. And what did that do for Adam and Eve as they fell smack dab into the middle of his plot? As their feet were caught in his noose. Think with me secondly about the despair that that brought to them. You see, as soon as they had eaten, they knew that something was wrong. And that evening as God came into the garden, they tried to hide themselves and they couldn't. They tried to shift the blame for their sin and God wouldn't let them. And God then began to unfold for them what it meant when he had said prior to that, that in the day you eat of this, in that day you shall surely die. What that was going to mean for Adam and Eve is that they were going to have pain in childbirth. They were going to have agony in raising their food. They were going to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden, never to come back again. And they were going to experience death and the despair that comes with that. All because they were just reaching for one little thing that God had withheld from them. But imagine with me as they're walking out of the Garden of Eden and they're looking back and there is the angel with the flaming swords preventing them from ever going back into that idyllic place again. The despair that would have engulfed their souls. What have we done? What were we thinking? Now all we have ahead of us is darkness and death and gloom and despair. But God, in the very middle of sentencing his people and Satan himself, provided a ray of hope. Do you remember what God said in the garden itself? He he said, the day is going to come when an offspring of this woman will crush Satan's head. God is the empire that's going to strike back. And his plan is to destroy that person who was trying to destroy his creation. And so this is the reason that the Son of God appeared, Scripture says. The Son of God appeared at Christmas time. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. And this was a promise that God repeated throughout the generations. He said the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You see, the the noose that Satan had laid for people was the noose of sin. And once they had sinned, then they were separated from God and they were united with death and destruction and Satan's plan had come to fruition. So God, in a complete reversal, turned the tables again and he figured out a way to take away the sins of the people. And of course, you and I know what way he figured out to do that. His name is Jesus. And when we read the story of Christmas from Matthew chapter 1, the angel tells Mary, you are to give him the name Jesus because he's going to do what? He's going to save his people from their sins. That was the problem. That was what's bringing death and destruction and despair to us is our sin. And when that's dealt with, when, when our sins are taken away by this Redeemer, then we will be free again to enjoy a perfect relationship with our Father in heaven, our Creator. Now, we know, of course, that this all didn't happen on Christmas Day. In fact, it wasn't completed until Christ died on the cross and was raised again from the dead. And you know what he did on that day? He took that edict that was against us and he nailed it to the cross. 
that written regulation that we read about in Colossians that was condemning us and he nailed it to the cross and disarmed all the principles and authorities and powers. Jesus took the power away from Satan by paying the price for our sins. You see, Jesus is our deliverer because he's dealt with our basic problem. And this is the message of Christmas. Christmas, you see, was like D-Day. It wasn't the end of the war, but it was that time when God established a beachhead in enemy territory. And he said, I'm going to send deliverance to my people. And over the next 33 years, that was worked out until finally victory was achieved on the cross and in the empty tomb. Deliverance has been provided by our God. God used Esther to deliver his people from the Persians, just like he had used Moses to deliver his people from the Egyptians in the first exodus. And just like he was going to use Jesus to deliver his people from their sins in the second exodus. And there are some neat parallels between Jesus and Esther. Esther was a pure virgin. Jesus was a lamb without spot or blemish. Esther had come to the throne for such a time as this, the text says. The New Testament says, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a virgin, born under law, to redeem those under law so that we might receive full rights as sons. Esther had submitted her will to the Father's will. She said, nevertheless, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. And Jesus said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, there's a price for our salvation. And, and Esther paid it and, and Jesus paid it in his own life. And finally, Esther went into the presence of the king to plead on behalf of her people for their deliverance. Do you know what Jesus did? The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus entered the most holy place where God the king dwells by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And there in heaven, his blood pleads for his people. And his blood says, I have delivered them from their sins and forgiven their iniquities. Their destruction is gone because I've taken it upon myself. Jesus, my friends, is our deliverer, our savior, our rescuer, our only hope. He has taken us from darkness and brought us into light. He's taken us from death and given us life. He has turned our despair into rejoicing because he is our deliverer. Well, can you imagine then? The incredible delight that we should feel because of all that Jesus has done for us. The delight that comes from deliverance, from despair of destruction. Oh yeah, just like the Jews celebrated, we need to do the same thing. But you see, it won't be until we fully understand the depths of our darkness that we'll be able to celebrate with all of our heart and soul. It was about a year ago that I had a fresh appreciation for the deliverance of God. Six of us were traveling in India. Uh, we were visiting some of the Yadav people, this large unreached people group that our church is keenly interested in. And we were traveling with a missionary and an Indian driver in the province of Bihar, which we found out was sort of like the, the Wild West, kind of a, a rough area. And as we drove along this country road, we, we noticed up ahead that traffic had been stopped. And, and there were cars across the road and people milling around. And so our driver went right up to it and we, we asked what's going on and found out there was some commotion. So he tried to turn the car around. And when he did that, somebody banged on the car and said, don't back up. They put some bricks under the back tires of our car, told him to turn the engine off. 
He didn't. So somebody reached into the cab, turned the engine off, and took the keys. And at that moment, my blood turned to ice. It's like, oh my goodness. I'm the director of outreach at College Park Church, and now six of us aren't coming back from India. We had this angry crowd that was milling around us. We had no idea what was going on. They asked the missionary to get out, and he went and talked with the people for what seemed like a couple of hours. It was probably only 15 minutes. But as people were milling around, we thought, you know, all that it's going to take is just one angry bee to, to knock the car or smash a windshield. These guys could turn the car over, and, and that was going to be it. We, we barely had strength to cry out to God and say, God, deliver us. Well, about 15 minutes later, the missionary came back and said, what's happened is there was a murder here a few days ago in the village and the police haven't responded appropriately. And so they've come out and they've blocked the road and they're just trying to make a commotion uh, so that the government will pay attention to their needs. But they said that we could go. And so they handed the keys back and they removed the bricks from behind the tires. And I will never, ever forget as long as I live that feeling as we backed the car around and took off down the road. Our hearts were filled with songs of joy because we had experienced a night of despair. That's what the people of Israel experienced when they returned from their captivity in Babylon. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. When you've been in the pit of despair and God delivers you, it's like this is unbelievable. Can this be true? Is it actually happening? And it did happen, and they were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy, is the testimony of the psalmist. In Isaiah, this is written, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. You're going to be so overrun with joy that you won't be able to escape it when you understand the despair that God has delivered you from. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's the celebration that a father wants to have when his son returns from his rejection of him and all that he believes. And when that prodigal son came back, do you remember what the father did? He killed the fatted calf and he had a massive party. He celebrated And when somebody asked him why he was doing that, these are his words. He said, but we had to celebrate because this son of ours was lost and now is found. See, this is the story of Christmas, my friends. And it's it's best summed up, I think, in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. And let me invite you to turn there quickly. Isaiah chapter 9. You'll see all the themes that we've been talking about in Esther right here in these seven verses. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You see the despair and then the the light that comes from God. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
They had been delivered from the oppressor. And so their darkness had been turned into light and their gloom into joy. The reason, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And what was the light? It was the deliverer, Jesus Christ, who would defeat the enemy and bring such joy to the people that they would rejoice before him. Verse three, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils. This was going to be like winning the lottery for these people. When Jesus came, he had provided everything that they could ever dream of, only it's something that would not turn to dust in their hands. It was a joy that would last for all eternity because it was eternal redemption that he provided. So how do we celebrate Christmas exactly? Well, let me suggest that we use the template of Esther 9, verse 22, and do the exact same things those folks did. The Bible doesn't prescribe how we have to celebrate Christmas. We can do it in any way that's meaningful to us and that's lawful according to the law of Christ. First, feasting. Yeah, you want a biblical rationale for a Christmas feast? Here you go, right in Esther 9.22. I mean, put that ham in the oven. Bake those rolls to perfection. Load up that pie with cherry filling and smother it with vanilla ice cream and have a party because we've got a lot to celebrate. Go ahead and give gifts to one another. Absolutely. That's a good thing to do. Enjoy your shopping. Think about how you're going to bring joy to other people. And it may look a little different in these hard economic times, and it maybe should. But still within the means that God has provided, let's, let's go ahead and send gifts to one another. So that we can corporately, as a family and as a community, celebrate the deliverance that God has brought by sending His Son, Jesus. God is not some cosmic Grinch who grimaces every time we spend a little bit of money on somebody. He he likes us to enjoy and to celebrate the good gifts that he has given us. Gift giving, so to speak, is a symptom of good times, Laniac said. My friends, even though economic times are not good, spiritually times are good because it's Christmas. And God has won for us something that will never be affected by the stock market or our bank accounts. He has won for us an eternal salvation. And so we can celebrate that by giving gifts to one another. But in the middle of that, let's not forget the third thing. Let's not end our celebration with ourselves. Let's remember the poor as well. And that's actually what you've just done. That's one reason why we take a Christmas offering every year at Christmas. Because in the middle of our spending on ourselves, we want to spend on others as well. And it's not a bad idea to spend more on others than we spend on ourselves. See, that's why we're involved in the Brookside Initiative this year. Because we want to take this message of deliverance from despair and destruction to people in a neighborhood of our very own city who do not know this message and are living the life that we saw in the Power of His Name videos. Eric sang that song. That's their life. They need deliverance. And, And we can provide it through our giving. So... Give generously to the poor at this time of Christmas as part of our celebration. And we'll still take donations through the end of the month. So if if the offering plant went by and you weren't ready, that's fine. Come back and give your money later, sometime this month, for the Brookside Initiative. This is so important. 
And the reason is, not only are we commanded to care for the poor, as the Jews were, they were told to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. And we, according to Paul in Galatians, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is a responsibility on us at all times, but particularly in our time of celebration here at Christmas. That's why we want, we want to remember the poor. We, we want to remember those who have less of this world's goods than we do. We want to remember those who have less of the gospel of grace than we do. And that's why we want to give generously so that we can pour out these blessings and share them with others. Because there's a danger if we don't. And here's the danger. A fascinating verse from the book of Ezekiel. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Now notice who that's talking about. That's Sodom. What was Sodom's sin? You wouldn't say this was their main sin. You would say their main sin was gross immorality. And it was. But here's where it started. The problem with Sodom was that they began to think it was all about them. They consumed God's blessings on themselves. They became overfed and then they became unconcerned for others. And they began to slip down that slippery slope of moral degradation. Until they arrived at the very bottom of what human beings can do. And so you see, this is not only the right thing for us to do to give to the poor. We need it for our spiritual vitality to keep us concerned for others and, and to be a channel of the blessing of God's grace to others so that it doesn't turn sour in us. So that we don't become like Jeshurun, which means the people of Israel who grew fat and kicked, filled with food. He became heavy and sleek. So party at Christmas, but don't party every day of the year. Don't become heavy and sleek, just soaking up all that God has given. Or the danger is that you might abandon the God who made you. And you might reject. You might forget that God is your Savior and your Deliverer. That's why we want to give generously at Christmas. So feast abundantly. Give generously. And remember the poor. As you remember him who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. So that through his poverty... We might become rich, and rich indeed we are as the children of God. Well, that's the story of Purim, and that's the story of Christmas. What's the story of you? I can't tell you that story, because that's your own story. But I, I want to ask you this morning as we close, have you entered personally into this story of Christmas? Is it your own experience? Or is Christmas just a story about another time in another place? A story for someone else? A story from your childhood that might have some warm, fuzzy memories for you, but nothing that's lasting on into the rest of your life? If it is, let me invite you this morning to come back in to the story of Christmas. And how do you do that? Well, here are the four acts of our story. And notice there are two acts that are controlled by others and two acts that are controlled by us. Others have planned our destruction. That's Satan. And you need to understand this morning the despair that comes from that if you have not already. The wages of sin is death. And if you continue to go your own direction, you are going to find yourself in a pit so deep and with walls so slippery that you will never, ever in your own strength be able to get out. And you are facing the imminent destruction of God. You need to feel that despair in your soul that you've been caught in the noose of our enemy, Satan. And then you need to know what God has done. 
God who loved you so much that he sent his son at Christmas time. That if you would believe in him, you would not perish, but you'd have everlasting life. God has provided redemption and deliverance through his son. And what you need to do today, if you have not yet, is you need to put faith, your own personal faith in that provision for your deliverance. See, this isn't an automatic gift that shows up at every doorstep in the entire world. It's not like Scrooge's Christmas turkey that just showed up at Bob Cratchit's door one Christmas morning. Yes, it is completely a free gift, but you need to reach out your hand and receive it by faith and put yourself in this story and say, God, I realize I've done everything to destroy my life and I've fallen into the pit of the evil one. But I also realize that you've provided for my redemption through sending Jesus. And I want to receive that salvation this morning. What a wonderful time of year it would be for you to experience that life. I'd invite you, if you're in that position this morning, to not leave today without giving that some serious thought. Without giving your life to Jesus Christ. And there will be people here at the front afterwards. If you just make your way forward and speak with one of them, they would love to explain how you can enter into life and life everlasting. But for those of you that have already made the Christmas story yours, we just have one application this morning. It's pretty simple, and it's this. Go and Christmas party. Delight in the deliverance from the despair of destruction. And as you do so, remember the poor, and do it to honor our Savior, our Deliverer, the Messiah of the world, the only hope for our lives, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I will exalt you, O Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. O Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, we will give you thanks forever. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.